Welcome to Magnet Classics, where we take a deep dive into the albums the magazine has championed over the years. I'm your host, Hobart Rowland. Episode 5, The Story of the Blake Baby's Sunburn. You could argue that Sunburn was college rock's last great statement. All Music's Stuart Mason describes the Blake Baby's third full-length release as, quote, the pinnacle of the U.S. indie guitar scene of the late 80s, and the album that exemplifies what alternative meant in those pre-Nevermind days. A year after Sunburn's 1990 release, Nirvana changed rock forever. By then, the Blake Babies were almost a done deal after forming at Boston's Berklee College of Music just five years earlier. Meanwhile, a blossoming Juliana Hatfield was on her way to a productive solo career that would see a few early 90s hits and a string of acclaimed albums. Moving forward, her no-holds-barred confessional style and stark vulnerability would influence future generations of female singer-songwriters. Hatfield certainly came into her own on Sunburn, writing or co-writing 10 of its 12 songs and singing on all of them. So perhaps it's not a huge surprise that the trio came unglued soon after the album failed to live up to some pretty lofty expectations. But real life is complicated, and so were the Blake Babies. We'll let Hatfield guitarist John Strom and drummer Frida Love speak for themselves. Strom picks up the narrative with Sunburn's 1989 predecessor, Earwig, which critics saw as a significant improvement over the band's uneven 1987 debut, Nicely Nicely. Earwig also features bass from the Lemonheads Evan Dando, who joined the band briefly during that period. So we met Gary Smith in, it must have been early 1988. I think we were playing a show at the Rat with the Pixies and Throwing Muses, which were his two bands he was working with. And, and he approached us and took us to the studio and really uh, got things moving right away. And we went and immediately started working and recorded six or seven songs that were essentially demos. And they came out in England on this label that Billy Bragg had called uh, Utility Records. Billy was Gary's best buddy. And so those were the recordings that we got signed on, basically. 
so then when we had a budget for mammoth and we went back in and we recorded some more like i remember we did cesspool and sanctify and no not sanctify cesspool and i can't remember which all we did oh um dead and gone was another one in the second round so you can kind of hear a little bit of difference between the first round and the second round in part because half of them have evan playing bass and singing and half of them are more of a trio approach but we we were thinking the whole time we were making a record it was not just let's cut some demos and get a deal we we're thinking these are going to come out so but it but it was over a couple sessions gary smith who produced both earwig and sunburn at boston's legendary fort apache studios what's interesting is uh, one of the things is interesting is that because i felt so unprepared to discuss the memories of this because I'm old. Um, I, I have an archive. I have the whole Fort Apache archive and it's everything, you know, like whatever records and posters and journals and you name it. So I went yesterday and I grabbed a bunch of stuff and I started paging through journals. I used to be a journaler. I'm not really that anymore, but um, I think it was maybe in Sometime in 88, I um, started working on just demos. I, I loved them. And in fact, reading my own notes, which of course are lost, you know, I don't remember any of that stuff. Um, I really love them more than I remembered. Um, and I was in a moment with bands at that time, I had come out of a band. I had so it, I went. I my band, would, who remains nameless, um, broke up in '87, and um, I did the Pixies record within weeks of that. I had already done the Muses tape, like the maybe in '85, and then they put out their own record with uh, with Gil Norton. And then I was like, shortly after the Pixies record, I was working on the Muses record. And then I was working on stuff with Billy Bragg and Natalie Merchant. And I was where I was just like, I want to go flipping through the pages of these journals. It was like one thing after another and so many in a row that I can see why I can't really remember much of it. You know what I mean? It was a, it was a blur, but distinct in that um, page turning time elapsed picture that was painted by these journals is how much I loved that the Blake babies. I, I think I thought they were going to have the same immediate response that the muses and the pixies had had the moment I finished their, their work. Earwig, we were still kind of grinding and figuring out. We didn't have a, a a deal until halfway through it. So that record came out and that was really our debut. And that's where we did our first real tour and really started to get on the map. And Sunburn was the record we made when we actually had some wind in our backs and we're at least in the process of making the record, we're thinking this is the breakthrough record for this band. This is going to establish us in a, you know, quote unquote career. Juliana Hatfield and Frida Love. I think we liked Earwig and we kind of wanted, I don't remember 
thinking about doing anything radically different. I think we kind of like continued what we started with earwig, continued that kind of um, thing with sunburn. Does that sound right to you guys? That sounds about right. I mean, I, I, I think earwig was a little bit patched together. Like it represented a couple of different recording sessions, didn't John, you guys will correct me if I'm wrong. Um, I, I do have, like, have a sense that when we recorded sunburn, like wanting something more cohesive and stronger and that represented the ways that we'd grown as a band and kind of evolved as a band. But I didn't, I, I, I agree with Juliana that we didn't have in mind a radical departure or a totally different approach. And the fact that we were working with Gary and that his approach was in recording us was really consistent that we knew what to expect when we were going in. John Strom. I wasn't, I wasn't a confident lyricist, you know, Juliana so much more confident with and, and much better at writing lyrics. So for the most part, what I do is I'd write a song to the point where I had the chord structure and a pretty good idea for the melody and, you know, like riffs and stuff. And then I would just put it on a tape and I'd hand it to her. And, you know, I usually give her a few at a time <laughs> you know, to decide what to listen to, what to, what, what caught her interest. And then she would just finish the songs and she would, uh, change the melody a little bit to suit her voice and write a lyric. And uh, so that's a lot of the songs on Sunburn, like out there. I went back last night to, to try to listen to Sunburn and I can't really listen to some of those songs. They're very disturbing. I was very dis emotionally disturbed, like that one. Watch me now, I'm calling, <laughs> I couldn't even listen to it. Well, I'll Take Anything is really sad too. That's and too, give yeah. me some mirth. Like they, it just, it sounds like, like, songs about depression, like severe mental illness. Yeah, and I don't know how you guys put up with me because I must have been, I know that I was the most miserable, wretched, depressed person. And I don't, I don't know how, like full of anxiety, unable to communicate, moody. And that's, I think that's reflected in the songs. I was pretty miserable and, and, and um, disturbed, I think. And 22. Gary Smith. The thing about the Blake babies is that it was very, aside from some churning guitars from time to time, it was very delicate music. Had all those weird sus chords and stuff. It wasn't like a, wasn't like a hard rock record, even though it rocked. It had these other kinds of ins and outs that made it very personal and idiosyncratic and that's not mainstream, but what I wanted to do, I mean, I mean, the Pixies were not a mainstream band, even though they met, met the mainstream, the mainstream came to them. And, um, and what I wanted to do was make the sound luxurious enough that it would be hard to deny it. I mean, I, I think like, <clears throat> Guitar, some guitars were doubled. First, let me just get back to this one thing. I think they did play all the basics live and live together. I think that's how it worked. Um, and then we went back and overdubbed guitars and tracked vocals and maybe percussion or added an acoustic guitar. But I think the fundamental recording experience was everybody playing the song in the room. Now, sadly, I don't have the tapes and I, I emptied the tape room and I have everything. 
I don't have the multi-track masters and I have most of my multi-track masters. My, when I say my, I mean ones that I did. Um, and so I couldn't find track sheets to talk to you about because that would have been interesting. Um, <clears throat> but my recollection is we banged out the songs. So we had a, a backdrop to, to paint the rest of it on. We didn't have that much time. It was like a $10,000, $12,000 budget or something, 15, maybe, <clears throat> which, you know, maybe seems like a lot. I just, I just before 3.30 came, I ran upstairs and pulled the contract to see how much they paid me. They paid me a thousand bucks. So the budget couldn't have been that big. I just sold the guitar for 3,000 bucks. I was like, well. John Strom. Gary, Gary was such a mentor to us and so important for us and gave us a lot of confidence because he was very enthusiastic and, and he brought the knowledge that we needed. He knew how to make good sounding records and we didn't. <laughs> so we trusted Gary a lot. I think his vision for, for Sunburn was that it was going to be a breakthrough as well. And he had a lot of confidence because he had accomplished breakthrough recordings for artists he worked with. So you know, he was a lot of the reason why we felt so confident that it was going to connect is, is he was a great, great cheerleader. But he brought in this engineer, Steve Hagler, who, who was a very kind of in the pocket engineer, had a way of doing things. And there is a, a, a you know, a, a defensible methodology, especially at the time for kind of doing extreme separation where you had the ability to really have control in the mix over things. So there was a certain amount of, you know, let's play the hi-hat with the metronome and then add the kick and snare later. And Frida's parts are pretty simple and straight ahead. It's not like she's, you know, going on Neil Peart or whatever, you know, she's just kind of, you know, laying down a groove. So I don't think that it inter interferes with the feel, but that was not a record that was made with the feel of being on stage and playing. It, it was more of a laboratory setting. And we spent a whole lot of time getting the vocals right, you know, many, many takes to comp, you know, the, there were days when I played guitar for 12 hours straight until my, you know, fingers are literally bleeding to get the parts right. So it was meticulous. I took it so seriously. It was ridiculous. Looking back, like it was, it was really, really serious business making Blake Baby's music from my perspective. And, and it just, it mattered so much and it, but it was, yeah, I don't, it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was fun for me. You guys, what about you guys? No, I mean, it was satisfying sometimes like, cause we were working really hard and we we're working yeah. in a really focused way. We didn't have time to mess around. You know, we couldn't afford like days and days and days and days in the studio. So there is a kind of satisfaction in just like, we were prepared, we were focused. We were also, we were dedicated. Like even if there was tension in the band and we were having a hard time. Like we cared so much about the songs and we wanted them to sound as good as they could. So it might not have been fun, but it was satisfying because things were sounding good. We were getting, we were getting good tracks and I loved the songs and really believed in the songs. I was frustrated at the time because we couldn't really afford decent gear. <laughs> and uh, I was playing this kind of, you know, crappy Japanese strat that really didn't work in a trio setting. So Juliana had some kind of student Gibson, you know, Les Paul type guitar that sounded really bad. And that's what I was playing. So I was very, very unhappy with my guitar sound because it was kind of thin. And the guitar on Sunburn, I played all through Gary's rig. And 
he had me playing a Fender Jazzmaster, which I went out the next year and, and got one of my own and then got another one. And that's really the only guitar I played on stage in the studio since then. I'm a huge devotee of the Jazzmaster, but he had a rig with a Jazzmaster through this Music Man amp that was just a sound that he knew was good. So I used that sound for everything. So I like my guitar sound better on the album and that's kind of what I was focused on. But I think the feel on the demos, and I hope those come out, uh, is is a lot more powerful. It sounds like a band playing on stage, which Sunburn, I, don't, I think, is an album really doesn't. Gary Smith. In trying to like think about what made the Blake Babies the Blake Babies and why I was so smitten, they had a kind of defiant sadness to them, musically and lyrically. In person, they were very upbeat people. I mean, at least their public persona was very upbeat. They were charming and, and easy to hang out with. But their, their songs had a kind of, there was a defiance in, in, in the way they represented sadness as a thing. And I, for one, found it like very young in, in one way. And, you know, graft on the Juliana vocal style of the period, and it's particularly young, but the, in that kind of, I don't know, the youthful pining, there was something incredibly universal that I felt. And I was, I was only 30, you know, they were already in their 20s and I was only 30, but to, it seemed like they were generations younger than me, and I felt like an old man in their presence. There's a frisson between the instruments that is that is melancholic in, in many ways, despite being strident. That's hard to come by. Former Mammoth Records GM Steve Balcom. Sunburn. So Sunburn is the really the only record they made as a band kind of in that session and had all the momentum from earwig and really at that point we thought we could take on the world we thought we were you know we thought we knew we had something really special on our hands with the blake babies and so um that record is special in that way it was made at a time when their their, their career was kind of on the on the steep decline uh, steep incline and we had labels looking at them and um, there were a lot of, there was a lot of excitement in that record. Juliana originally wanted to call the record Suntan. And um, I never loved that title, but we were kind of rolling with it. And we took it back to Steve. So what do you about, think about Suntan? He's like, yeah. So then we were on a call with him and he said, so are you still thinking about calling the record Sunburn? We're like, you know, <laughs> as a matter of fact, yeah, let's call it Sunburn. That's better. And uh, it, part of it, I think, is because Juliana's from a she's from a beach community. She's she's from Duxbury, and she has songs like the song "AKA Duxbury," which is very critical of her hometown, is still about kind of hanging out at the beach and stuff. And we were such beach rats. Every summer, you know, we would rely on the charity of all of our rich friends, like the Lemonheads' parents and Juliana's parents, to spend the whole summer at the beach. You know. And we also thought reasonably, because we had a lot of interest and attention, that we were going to 
have it come out on a major label. We thought it was going to be a big record that was going to get a big push and, you know, be on MTV and all that. So we were a bit more focused and a bit more ambitious, I think, in making a record that would, that would hold up as a, you know, as something we might be talking about in 30 years, you know, mission accomplished, I guess. <laughs> it was really a great ride through Earwig and into Sunburn. Um, we, like I mentioned earlier, had labels sniffing around. I'm sure John, probably told you some stories about that and there's one in particular that is fairly infamous but um you know and as a label mammoth was always open to that because you know we wanted to take that band as far as we could take them and knowing that there's only five of us in an office um you know there, there could be something there where again we provide a, a certain role for the band and then the major label provides a bigger role. And that was really what you saw in the, in the early nineties and what ended up happening with Mammoth and Juliana Hatfield when we signed to Atlantic, we signed her to Atlantic. So. And we were taking meetings and we had a couple of labels in particular that were interested. One of them was Columbia, this guy, David Kahn, who had a real idea for how he wanted to produce it, which really didn't mesh with ours. So we passed on that. And then the other one was, was, uh, a label that I won't mention, I won't mention the name of the label or the individual because it's not very flattering, but uh, we went in for a meeting before we made Sunburn because this guy really wanted to sign us. And, you know, I, I now recognize it for what it was, which was, you know, the A&R pitch, but he was blowing a lot of smoke, you know, saying like, oh, you guys, I mean, you know, you're the next talking heads. I mean, this is, you know, there's no ceiling for this. And he'd signed successful acts before, so you know, really kind of filled us with a lot of confidence, which was actually nice going into the record because, you know, we, we came out of there, at least Frida and I, thinking like, yeah, that's the label we want to be on. And uh, so then we made the record and we felt great about it. And the first thing that we did after we finished the record, it was a New York office for this label and we finished in, you know, the New York suburbs in Connecticut. So like pretty much as soon as the thing came off the, the you know, the, the, the reel from from the final mixes uh we called this guy up and said hey our record's done we'd love for you to hear it and he said said well you'll come by and play it for me so frida and i went into the city and uh showed up at this major label office and you know, we the, the receptionist made us wait about a half an hour which was probably a bad sign you know we're sitting out there in the in the lobby in this opulent office and then he invites us back to his, his office and kind of curt you know not really as friendly as before and we sit down in his office he's got this beautiful stereo you know it's like up in the 27th floor whatever gorgeous view and we're just thinking like he's going to be blown away this is a great moment and we listened to the whole thing you know and the only pause is when he got up to flip over the cassette and we got to the end of it and he just kind of stood up and said well you know i'm really disappointed i, I really don't hear what i heard on the other one and, and i'm afraid this is a pass for me and just handed it back to us and we were just stunned, you know, because we knew, I think objectively, that we'd made a better record, that it was that was it was a step forward from your wig, and that we delivered on our end, and we were just completely disoriented. And it was one of the most sort of humbling and unsettling things that I think ever happened to us. You know, we just didn't, you know, we kind of walked out of there speechless. I mean, again, the reality of 1990 music industry is there were a couple of commercial alternative or modern rock stations. There was MTV playing, you know, a very select few on 120 minutes. Um, it really, there was not a lot of mainstream 
outlets for alternative music at that point. Nirvana really broke that open. And then once that was broken open, all of a sudden there was modern rock radio stations in every single major mid-sized market. There was so much more mechanism for people to hear the music. Sunburn didn't, um, you know, it was, it wasn't that big of a deal when it came out and maybe that was part of why we, maybe we all wanted more. I, I don't remember wanting anything specific from it, but we probably all, you know, I, I do remember feeling kind of a little bit frustrated overall with the situation. Um, I felt like after Earwig and Sunburn, we had done maybe like that was the pinnacle. Like, I don't know what else, where we could go after that musically. Although this is, you know, like, I, I don't know if that's really how I was thinking. That's just, this is just what I remember. And we weren't, yeah, we weren't really getting along very well. The band wasn't exploding um, commercially. So there was not that pull keeping us together. And, um, and then there was a period where free to quit the band, right? Like none, we weren't happy. I was really tired. tired. Yeah. yeah. Just tired and unhappy and just didn't feel, it didn't feel harmonious. Um, it just had kind of stopped feeling exciting the way that it had felt when we started. And then just was time. It was yeah. just time to stop. And it's so, when I look back and think about it, it all happened. It seemed like such a huge deal. The band was such a big deal in my life and it was so important, but then it was really only a period of a few years that we were a band. It's amazing to think that it all happened so quickly and then it was over because it didn't feel like it was quick. It felt like a whole lifetime of a, of an, a really important period. When we broke up my first solo album, sold more than Sunburn had. And I wonder if it, that was just a timing thing. I don't know. You know, we had a band that did not have a lot of precedent for our approach. Frida was not technically a great drummer. You know, I'm not, I'm not conventionally a great singer. You know, there are things about the band that are not, you know, sort of slick and, and you know, market ready. You know, it was, it, it sounds a lot more like indie band sound now than it, than it sounded like, than, than, you know, major label band sounded back then. So uh, there were definitely some people who were scouting the band who were taking Juliana aside and saying like, hey, you know, you could really have some success if you could get out of this kind of, this corner you painted yourself into with, with working with these clowns, you know? And, uh, and she didn't necessarily, it didn't resonate with her. She's like, oh yeah, I never realized, you know, how, how inept my band was, but it was kind of like, yeah, I could work with other musicians and do other things. And I think it probably spread up, sped up a process that was inevitable because we were a band that started as a true democracy. At the beginning of the band, I had a lot more knowledge about how things worked and how to, you know, kind of accomplish our goals than Frida or Juliana did, which they would admit because I had more experience. But she emerged as the focal person and, and it, I mean, I'd like to think that I wouldn't do the same thing today, you know, since I work in talent now and I, I you know, represent artists and, and we're, I've worked with companies, but I'm not sure I wouldn't, you know, if I saw something where I felt like a band was really holding a singer back, you know, I might say, hey, you, you might liberate yourself by doing this. And 
I also know that that we would have made different records than Juliana made on her own, for better or worse. I'm not sure if it would have meant she had a bigger career or a smaller career. It just would have been a different career. So, yeah, I think there were a lot of things that contributed to that. And a lot of it was our collective immaturity at the time. The people at the labels who were courting Juliana had a sense that she was one of the she had a persona that could that could break mainstream, which kind of sort of did. And same with Dando. And uh, I think Frida and I doing a lot of magical thinking, we're like, well, you know, we're here and we can start our own band and, you know, we'll tap into that too. And, you know, that really never happened. Gary Smith. There is only one reference to Sunburn in these books. And I have a lot of books. Only one. And, and it's mostly not about sunburn, but it is. Once I, I first I was like, oh, I'm gonna keep that to myself. It's a little embarrassing. It's a little embarrassing, but I, I'm old enough. I'm gonna be dead soon and who cares? Um, it goes like this. It's June 17th, 1990, Stamford, 2 a.m. I'm in Connecticut mixing sunburn by the Blake babies. Electrist Peter Lubin came by the studio to visit Steve Hagler. Steve Hagler is the engineer who did Sunburn. To visit Steve Hagler and to play him the newly mastered Pixies record that Steve had mixed. For some reason, his very presence sent me into an ugly depression for five hours. In fact, I don't know if it's over yet. Obviously, the Pixies are not mine and they never were. I did only one record, but I want, I have an ugly need for people to know that someone was there trying to make them famous before they were who they are now. And as I see it, the Blake babies are in a similar situation at this moment. I want other people to see them with the same doting look that constantly shines on the Pixies. As for the Pixies record, now called Bossa Nova, it sounds good, full of menacing grit and high grade production but it leaves me a bit cold for its lack of humanity, which I find most important in recordings and which this Blake's record has in spades. It's obvious it's made by mortals, which I admire. Maybe it's hard to be big without losing the scale of one's humanity, and that's a pity. In truth, the whole Pixies phenomena should make me very happy. They became big just as I'd hoped and worked for, but it fills me with a sadness that I can never put into words for fear of becoming Mr. Sour Grapes. But it's not about me, it's about the world. And I really do hope the Blakes can surmount it. Free to love. I work at a university, I work at Northwestern and one of my jobs is I'm an academic advisor um, for film students. So I work with creative students and every single year, there are at least like two or three students who come to me and like, I just heard your band, Blake Babies. Like some of them are DJs on the, the the student radio station, WNUR, which used to play Blake Babies back in the days and kind of still has those records like in this in the radio station, on the radio station shelves. And so, yeah, at least a few students every year will kind of discover the Blake Babies. And that's really, really fun for me. So I like in my mind, we're just like eternally this college rock band and and, you know, maybe <laughs> maybe a few college students every year will hear sun, sunburn for the first time and get excited. And I'm lucky that I have 
a kind of direct access to that. Sunburn is now available in limited edition vinyl on American Laundromat Records. For more Magnet Classics episodes and exclusive bonus content, visit magnetmagazine.com and magnetclassicspodcast.com. Thanks for joining us. Episode 6, coming soon. <laughs>